Welcome to the Futuristic, Samo. Futuristic number 16, recording the 27th of October, 2023. Uh, let me let me bring in our other co-host. Let me talk to Maverick. Hey, man, you're on the Futuristic podcast as our co-host with Cam and Steve. Anything you want to say to the audience before we get started? Hey, everyone. It's great to be here. Buckle up because we're diving deep into topics that'll mess with your comfort zones. Prepare for a wild ride <laughs> with Cam, Steve, and yours truly. Let's get the show on the road. Love that. That's really good. It actually sounded like we're with some like uh, articulate Silicon Valley kind of cat who's kind of really. I call it just pulled some of that. I call it the Obama voice. It's kind of very, is, isn't kind it? of it's uh, a- smooth and uh, very mellow and articulate. Gets a bit annoying after a while, he was, but <laughs> he, was, he was he was a very smooth cat, and I'm sure you can tell me about all of the the evil shit that he did. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he danced well, and he was a smooth cat. I'll just get, I'll just leave it at that. So they made him in a lab to uh, appeal to you know the Democrats. Man, he was like perfect candidate. Anyway, let's move on. Steve, um, tell me one thing of note you did this week that is emerging technology futuristic related. I worked with a friend who's written a book about his grandma, his nonna. She's Italian. And I just helped him. Bella nonna? Bella nonna, see. Una bella bella nonna. Uh, And I helped him sort of curate some of the prompt hacking. And one of the things that we did was extend to create flavor of where she was from and the time that these things happened. And the reason that that was good to use a large language model was it can expand on it. You can say she's from the tiny town of Syracuse. That was something else, but let's just say it was that. You can say, tell us about Syracuse at that point in time, what it looked like, what it felt like, what it smelled like, how people behave, what they did. And it does that so well. The thing that it can do is you can put in facts and figures about what happened and who the people were, but the pros around it, you know, the 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 atmosphere can be written very, very well by a large language model. And these would be the things that would be fairly static and and would be known on the internet. So it was incredibly good at filling in the gaps of, you know, it was 1972 when she came to Australia and Italian immigrants did this and they did that and she had these skills and, and you know, the challenges. And it even went in so it was hard to keep in touch. It wasn't like now, you know, a letter took two months to get there. It even did a whole lot of, like it really anthropomorphized it beautifully. But there was one weird thing that I noticed is that it kept forgetting some of the details on the rewrites where it would drop things out because I'd asked it to focus on certain areas. And I even said, don't lose any of the original detail and don't make it short and make it longer. But it would drop out facts and I had to go back and go, no, wait a minute, you've forgotten about whatever, like this other bit here that she worked in this factory or she worked, like you went off. And I think that anthropomorphizing, people say, don't do it with AI. I think we need to do more of it. And this follows up on what we spoke about last week. It is us. It is a view of the world, a model of the world that pertains to us. And it was forgetting details as it went on to the next trajectory of the story in the same way that humans do. (laughs) That was my thing. Yeah, look, anthropomorphizing is um, always going to happen. It's just what we do. Like humans have been anthropomorphizing. I can never know. Morphizing. Animals, plants, the weather, nature, gods, the stars for 100,000 years. I mean, that's just how we interact with the world around. To say that we shouldn't do that with technology, like people do that with their pets, their cats. You know, Fox does it with his stuffed panda. You know, it has a voice and a character and a personality and it's involved in stories. Like that's just how we engage with the world. We are going to do it with technology, whether people say we should or we shouldn't. Uh, you You know, I do it with my Roomba. And I do it with my AI. It's just, it's just going to happen. People have been doing it with their cars for years. Men give their cars names and pat it and tell it they love it. <laughs> it's just how we, how we operate. But I, the tech. I mean, even cars kind of look like horses and animals in the way they have, you know, two eyes. And yeah, you know, why, why do they have two headlights? Because most animals have two eyes. I mean, it's real simple stuff, and the grill is in the mouth and all of that. You know, that sense of biomimicry. But a lot of people say, I oh, don't think that it's like us. I actually think the opposite. 
No, you need to go in and say, remember, the AI is a lot like us with some different you know, quantum and, and, and abilities to do things at scale. But it essentially, I think, I think it's a lot like us. I think it's more like us than we think, especially given we designed it. Yeah, it's one of the um, podcasts I listened to during the week. Uh, I think it was a confab of AI leaders uh, in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, somewhere. And I was on a bike ride. Um, it was on the A16Z uh, podcast, but um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Mira, the CTO of OpenAI, but they asked a question about what is AGI, and we may have touched on this on the podcast before, but the, the sort of the the running gag at the moment in AI circles is artificial general intelligence is defined as anything AI can't already do right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, exactly, exactly. I think we've got a story coming up later on, but Sam Altman said if if you had chat GPT four with the capabilities today, 10 years ago, we all would have been convinced it was AGI. It's just that our expectations keep moving and we keep pushing it a little bit further and further out. It's well, yes, it can do that. Like this Turing test, right? You know, it's like, yeah. well, yes, it can pass the Turing test, but really, is that the definition that we want? No, we need to push it down the road a little bit further. I agree. Uh, and I, I don't care what anyone says. What's general knowledge? Okay, we know what that is. So is this general knowledge? Well, it's general intelligence. Now, I just think that people are confusing AGI with ASI. Well, actually, Mira's definition on a serious note was that we'll have AGI when an AI can do Nearly everything humans can do in, in, in an intellectual realm uh, in a self-directed fashion. We don't have to ask it to do stuff or tell it to do stuff. It can just go away and figure stuff out. Like I've been writing a lot of code. That's what I've been doing this week, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of code, spending a lot of time. You know, GPT will come up with the idea for how to code something I want to do very quickly but then I'll spend a day or two days debugging it and workshopping it. Often, or sometimes, because I hadn't thought it through properly at the beginning, the brief was not quite right. And as you get further into it, you realize, actually, that's not quite what I want it to do. But quite often, because the code just fails. The code doesn't work, mm. and I have to go, okay, the code's not working, and we have to debug it and break it down and break it down line by line and do print statements to figure out where it's failing. We get there in the end. And, you know, even if it takes me a day to do this stuff, that's like five years less than it would have taken me to do it under my own steam. Yes. But uh, yep. it's still, you know, very painful process at times to get it. To, and, of course, every time it fails and I go, you failed or you didn't answer that question, can you please answer it? That's another message off my message tally. So my 50 messages in three hours I go through quite quickly by saying, yes, please proceed or that didn't work, let's try it again. Um, and I'm kind of pissed off when it says, sorry, you've used up all of your messages. I'll go, well, if you kept, if you didn't keep getting it wrong, if you got it right the first time, I wouldn't have had to use my 50 messages. But anyway, I'm not going to whine about how slow my super intelligent computer is. That would be churlish. What else have you been up churlish. to this week, Steve? Uh, I did an investor summit yesterday with the ASA. Oh, uh, my good friends. was... Oh, they, they're your good friends. Well, you know everyone, don't you? So, Who, who organized uh, that? Was it uh, Chairman Stephen Mab? It might have. I don't know. I just got invited to um, talk a bit about tech with a guy called Ev Lucas, who is um, part of the Invest Smart Group and does some superannuation fund allocation stuff. Oh, right. They're friends of yours, kind of had Invest like Smart, right. Alan Kohler's group? Yeah. Yeah, Kohler's group. So um, I did that, and that was cool, and I'm going to – come back to that in the um the tech throwback a lot of the and uh the guys who run the asa are um qav listeners and come on our show and right. all that kind of stuff yeah we know yeah. those guys well and go. i think that they probably yeah. listen to this show a couple of them too so yeah so the tech time warp i'll talk a little bit more about <laughs> that and there was one other small thing that i did which which was um interesting um i worked with a little ai where you train a robot it's called browse.ai mm -hmm. And what it is, is it's it's based on the idea of anyone can 
gather data off the web. Remember screen scraping used to be a big thing in the way mm. that a lot of startups got going where they would take information. I mean, it's essentially what Google does, right? It screen scrapes it's screen scraping goes back. To uh, yeah, basically. GPT. But it's a, it's a little AI where you can train it to give you data from certain websites where you want certain information. And one of the things that was for a client where they wanted pricing updates from their competitors. Mm-hmm. And you just do the logins and it's got a little robot that you drag around. And you go, I want this and I want it that often. I want that, oh. I want that. And then I want this. It's like a little robot icon on the screen. It's mm-hmm. almost like a Google um, browser extension. And I just thought, isn't that a really cool way because you train the little bot mm-hmm. And it, it again, it anthropomorphized. It was a little robot with a face where you go, I want this bit and it like chews it up and eats it and then goes to the next bit and it, and it says, how often do you want it? When do you want it? Do you want it when there's a change mm-hmm. or do you want it? And there's different scale. Sense a good little business because you could scale it up for a big corporation if they want a lot of data from a lot of areas. But what I liked is that it demystified that scraping process to get data points. People know what they want and they're usually trying to, to explain it to someone who has to code it. Mm-hmm. And this, you just become a point-and-click mm-hmm. coder with the AI, and I really thought that was cool. You know what that sounds like? I mean, that's what what that's sort of the same thing I've been doing by writing Python scripts with GPT to go and grab data off of websites and use some functionality yeah. in Google Sheets to analyze spreadsheets. You, you, but you could- this sounds like the the apps that you get for kids to teach kids coding. Now, I know my older boys used them when they were like Fox's age. He's nine now. And Fox has done a bit of this stuff on the iPad. They did it on PCs back in their day. He's doing it on iPads where you have little animated characters and you, you know, you drag them around. But it, what it's doing is writing code behind the scenes. So it's just a fun animated way to teach you the principles of coding. They've actually, com- you know, commercialized this in a way where t- helping adults write code by making it fun and giving you a little character so you're not actually just t- writing text right? it, was, it, f- it felt fun to use and this is um, the thing we've been talking was- about on the show for months like one of the things that ai is going to do i'm stealing this from um uh, nadella statue actually nadella at um, microsoft it's going to create a billion programmers everybody is going to be able to yes. program the web, program their apps, program their computers the way they want. Uh, it's going to get easier and easier to just program everything the way you want it. All your devices to talk to each other and spit out this data, share information. We're going to just head into this world of LUI interfaces to APIs on everything. You'll be able to program everything and it's going to be seamless and easy. Natural language processing, or in this case, natural language programming. And and if we liken it to the industrial era, you know, we all learned how to drive a car, but we never all became a mechanic. We all learned how to drive software in the GUI era, but now we're all going to learn how to code as well. Um, so it's it's really good from that perspective. And you know, I, I always say I say it on stage. I say the most important coding language now is whatever language you like to speak. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's get into some news stories then, Steve. Um, this one's not exactly new news. This is from late August, but I heard them talk about it on one of these podcasts I was listening to on my bike ride, and I, I, I thought it was fascinating. So NVIDIA are planning on tripling the amount of GPUs, the A100 and um, H100s that they're putting out, which are the backbones of the the AI revolution. They're driving all these AI companies. They're tripling the amount of these things that they're going to put out next year. You know, they've already sold out, I think, a lot of their production schedule for next year. People are just, these things are flying off the shelves as quickly as they can make them with the AI Mm. revolution. But they're going to triple the number that they put out. Their goal is to put out one and a half to two million. They put out 500,000 units this year they're going to go up to one and a half to two million next year so yeah all that um you know yeah in one sense that's right we can expect a three to four hundred percent increase in the amount of ai that's available to us next year even if and we'll get into a story about this uh, in a sec you know, GPT can't be scaled any further. There's going to be all of these companies building AI infrastructure on the back of NVIDIA's chipset. And that that's not even, you know, talking about the competitors to NVIDIA and, 
you know, X building their own and maybe Apple building their own and Meta building their own and OpenAI building their own, et cetera, which has been rumored. Yeah. The first thing that I, I gravitated to when I saw that was, oh, wow, let me look at the stock price and whether or not this is already priced in. And I, you know, because thinking that, that a company is going to go 4X, I mean, we're talking about production here. Now, it's easy to go 4X when you're a virtual product and you can scale infinitely. But when something has a physicality to it and you're scaling at that level, it's almost unheard of. You know, it wouldn't have been Henry Ford, wouldn't have any of the big industrial concerns that went crazy have never grown at that level. Um, you know, 10 billion in a quarter, it's not huge compared to, I think Google does about <clears throat> 75 billion a quarter. So it's small from that perspective. But it's their valuation is very very large compared to Alphabet. Alphabet has a twenty four times price earnings ratio. Nvidia has ninety seven times price earnings ratio. So I feel like this is already priced in. Mm. So I don't think there's much investment upside. And I was like, wow. Let me just look at the numbers. It was the first thing I gravitated towards. And compared to all of the other big tech firms, which have bigger revenue and much much lower price earnings ratios, and they're foreseeably going to be a benefit of this production capacity. But the thing that I like about it now that you've mentioned this is that it somewhat democratizes access to AI. And so all of these APIs and potentiality where if we have that capacity going out, even if ChatGPT doesn't get better, it might open up the potential to commoditize AI chips like AWS did in a way, a commoditized service. People forget you want to have a startup in 1998. You need to spend $200,000 on a bloody little server room in your in your office. Mm. It was no AWS. It was no any, you had no way to, to store it. And now AWS, you just plug in for what you need. Mm. And I wonder if NVIDIA or one of the big tech companies, and it looks like Meta is more likely to do it, sort of opens up a let's just call it an AWS, an LLM on demand, you know, mm. a scalable LLM that Cam or Steve's startup could use. That that could be really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if NVIDIA are planning on putting this out, and we didn't even talk about, you know, China building their own and that, that hitting the world as well. But if they're figuring on being able to sell three to four times as many of these quite expensive um, chips next year, then they're forecasting that there's going to be this explosion of investment and all of the competition amongst all of these companies. Like uh, we can definitely say that there is a, a sense that this is going to, we're going to see massive scale with the amount of AI that is reaching us and becomes available in the next 12 months, let alone the next five years. It's going to, you know, in the process, it's going to revolutionize so many things. Um, we can't even begin to imagine. I, I feel like it's a little we bit singularity-esque in that I can't even begin to predict what the world's going to look like a year from now. And it's, and it's, and it's foolish too. And, and the thing that you and I both know is that talking about the future isn't about guessing what's next. It's understanding plausible trajectories and, and knowing what you'll do when one of those eventuates. Mm -hmm. And AI will be able to help us do that. Map out all of the possible trajectories for me and calculate the well, probability of each. But, but also, the thing with AI that's kind of interesting is I know that industrial industrialization creates more industrialization. So you, you get a robot, a machine, and the machine helps build more, bigger and better machines. Mm. You know, like you know, the, the first earth mover, and then you get a bigger earth mover because, yeah. You know. But AI does it at a different scale. You know, AI is inventing AIs. It's that recursion and that, that self-perpetuating multiplier effect is is really interesting this time around. Well, speaking of that. Speaking of that, yeah, next story. Uh, just saw this last night. Quantum startup mm. Atom Computing first to exceed 1,000 qubits. Now, this is- Now, Cam, mm. Cam, you had in your notes here, you said, maybe we should ask ChatGPT to demystify that. Mm -hmm. And before I read that you had that mm -hmm. lower down, that was the first thing that I did. I don't pretend to know about quantum computing other than it has superposition and it can be ones and zeros simultaneously, which gives it more processing power. Um, and I looked into what, why is this amazing? And the whole thing was that uh, it was all about fault tolerance. Mm -hmm. And the thing that, because I asked ChatGPT, what, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And it came down to the fact that the reason that quantum computing is in incredibly hard to do is that it is 
very, very heavily impacted by the wide environment, you know, things like humidity, weather, little bumps uh, that happen, you know, with people walking around on the floor. And it's because it's dealing with things at a quantum level, it's very, very hard to create the stability needed for the computation and having an environment where it can actually function and work, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I'm just guessing, like, once you're dealing with things at the quantum or molecular level, maybe that's what happens. And this is why it was kind of extraordinary. It had a a, a greater capacity to work at scale. And that's been the number one issue with quantum computing as far as ChatGPT has told me. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it would have been cooler if we had ChatGPT tell us that instead of you, but sure, we can do it with you. <laughs> but let's. But what did it say? I'm, that's just me anthropomorphizing. I'm sure it'll do a better job. Well, one of the issues with this, I think, from reading the article is that I mean, it, it, a thousand qubits still doesn't sound like it's enough to perform many serious functions. So it's not like we're saying quantum computing has arrived. But the the big story here is that it's a massive increase in what has been done before and what this same company was able to do previously. So the I think previously, like in their last iteration, which was last year or something. Let me pull up the notes I've got here. This is from Ars Technica. It says they previously had a system that operated using only 100 qubits. This new system is 1,180 qubits. So I think that's like in a year they've gone from 100 to over 1,000. 10 times improvement in a year. And they believe they can continue to scale this up using the technology and the the, the system that they're operating on. So uh, it's a suggestion that we're getting better at scaling up uh, quantum computing. Still seems to be a long way from being a reality, but, um, you know, uh, so did AI um, a year ago. So who knows? what the future holds for quantum computing over the next few years. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, quantum supremacy has has arrived. You would hear that all the time. And the contention being that once someone cracks it, it's so powerful, everyone else becomes their their lapdog because it can only be one. But I don't know. It feels like, well, it feels like a long way off. I do have a question on this that I'll ask Maverick. I want to get your opinion on something. There was a story that hit the media last night that a company called Atom Computing has announced a 1,000 qubit quantum computer. And I saw a guy on TikTok say that this means the end of crypto. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the implications of quantum computing and crypto? Sure, this is a hot topic. Look, a 1,000 qubit quantum computer is impressive, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. The guy on TikTok is probably freaking out prematurely. Quantum computing has the potential to crack current cryptographic systems. Yeah, but that doesn't mean crypto is toast. Quantum-resistant algorithms are already in development, and they could be rolled out before quantum computers become a legitimate threat. But let's not sugarcoat it. Quantum computing could disrupt the security infrastructure of not just crypto, but everything that relies on encryption. It's a cat and mouse game, really. Tech advances, we adapt. So to say it's the end of crypto is a bit alarmist. It's more like a wake-up call to evolve and adapt. Oh, thank you, Maverick. Interesting. That was a really good answer. Mav, it's got a nice turn of voice too. Geez, I like that. Did you know? Did I tell you why I call him Maverick? No, you better tell me. Because I asked when when I got ChatGPT voice, I said. If I'm going to talk to you, I need to give you a name. What do you want me to call you? And it told me that it thought Maverick was a good name. So that's what I call it. I'm going to, well, Steve Steve writes note now on Notepad. Give, give your AI a name. Speak, yeah, no, speaking of anthropomorphizing it. Yeah, morphizing exactly. it. All right, next story, Steve. Um, I'm going to try and play this through the uh, recording. My name is Jill Biden, and I want to tell you about my husband, Joe. Joe is the world's biggest cheerleader for the atrocities happening now in Gaza. The United States stands with Israel. 
Right now, the right-wing extremist government of Israel is raining down hell on Palestinian civilians. They've killed over a thousand children in the last few days. This is a genocide. <laughs> Normal people around the world are standing up and demanding an end to the horror, but the only one who can stop it is Joe. The United States of America is supporting the actions of Israel, and the U.S. taxpayer is funding it. So come on, Joe from Scranton. Tell Israeli George W. Bush no more money for his bombs. Cut the funding, call for a ceasefire. End this fucking nightmare. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I watched that and it was on the Singularity Reddit. I think you had the link. What I noticed was that it said AI-generated political propaganda. Now, you and I know what that means, but you know what I think? I'm not sure a lot of people would know that that's not true just from the title. And it said, warning, graphic content. You know what it didn't say? It didn't say, warning, fake content on, on, the, on the Reddit. And you ha I had to log into Reddit to an 18-year-old Reddit to show so it would let me see it. But it was, it was extraordinary fidelity and resolution. So for people who can't see it to it, it opens with Jill Biden. And there are, she's, not, she's obviously the supposed narrator through the whole thing. But you see small clips of her talking to camera. It looks real. Um, it's really you don't see like it's not a whole minute of her though. It's just bits and pieces, and it's intercut with footage of Israel and Gaza stuff going on. Uh, but we've talked about this, you know. I think back in some of our first shows, we talked about the world of AI-driven political propaganda that we'd be going into. This is just another example. We've had other examples in the past, but yeah, it's going to become increasingly difficult to tell the difference between what's true and what's fake as everyone's known about this. And, you know, as I've been saying on some of my other shows, like the bullshit filter, you know, it's not really that different because the media and governments have been lying to us about these sorts of things as far back as we've had media and governments. Uh, in Julius Caesar's time, he was lying about stuff that was going on in Gaul to justify his military actions in Gaul. Uh, and, you know, the US entry into World War II, entry into Vietnam, entry into World War One, they were all based on lies that were fed to the people into Iraq, WMD, etc., uh, etc. Et Gulf War One, the Nazira testimony, Iraqi soldiers throwing babies out of windows. We've been lied mm -hmm. to with uh, political propaganda forever. And it's, you know, in some ways it's easier to tell truth from lie. I think these days, I remember you know, during Gulf war one, 1991, when my uh, friend, middle Eastern friends in Melbourne were telling me that there was a lot of propaganda, us propaganda about why they were going into Iraq it was very hard to fact check that. Back then, all you had was TV, newspapers, radio, and uh, you know there was no internet, there was no Reddit, there was no TikTok, there was you know, none of these things. So in some ways today it's easier, but it's also those things provide channels for more propaganda, so it's a little bit of both. I reckon it's harder. I'm going to go out and despite the vagaries of mainstream media, I think it was almost slightly incumbent for them to tell not a true story, but maybe be closer to it because they had their licensing and their spectrum rights and all of that. I don't know. I don't know. I reckon yeah, that were given to, to them by the now. people in power that they were lying sure. on behalf of. I, you know? I know, I know, I know, but I actually think it's harder to find what's true now. And the reason I say that it's harder is that I think that there was some reputable sources where you could get it back in the day and you sort of had like I think you had some sources that were there's just so much of it now I just think it's impossible to wade through it and know what's real that's what I think it's just there's just so much I reckon it's harder now let me let me just clarify and say I think it's harder now to find what's true than it was before and also because of 
you know, the, the, the face that Cameron just made that no one could see was that you, what you're t- telling me mainstream media had like some truth in it. Yeah. I, the point that I'm making is that almost because we were taught to be so suspicious over the last 20, 30 years, I think now people are just like looking for different angles and answers. And now it's just an absolute mess of who knows what's real. And, and it's much, much harder to fake something. Harder to fake something or easier to fake oh, something? I'm sorry. Much, much easier. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Fuck. It's, it's hard to fake things, people. Look, don't believe what you read. Everything's true. You know, no, the, much, much easier. The show I was recording for a couple of hours this morning was my Cold War show, and we're currently five or six episodes into Operation Ajax. Uh, for people who don't know what that is, that's when the US overthrew the government of Iran in 1953, the democratically elected government of Iran, and reinstalled the dictatorship of uh, the Shah. And the U.S. lied about that, their involvement in that for 40-odd years. It wasn't until the late 1990s that they finally admitted that they did do that after denying it for 40 years. And uh, it was difficult. <laughs> Steve's just giving me a wind-up. Uh, it was difficult no, to get well, the truth get out of everything. that. You had to read books. You had to go find books, read, you know, you know, historians that were, you know, telling the other side of the story is difficult. Anyway, moving right along, rightly so. Article in the Financial Review here in Australia this week, Steve, why there will never be a Canva or Atlassian from Aussie AI, quoting a venture capital investor, Zeb Rice, says, I'm seeing way more exciting stuff in the US. But um, I didn't really want to talk about that aspect of it. I wanted to talk about some of the other quotes in here. It says, um, walk into a large Australian law firm and ask the managing partner about the big issues on their mind. They will say remuneration frameworks and generative AI. Go up the road to meet the chief executive of one of the big consulting firms, and it will be conflict management or reputation and generative AI. Ask the CEO of a bank or the boss of a cement maker, telco giant, wealth manager, logistics park company, even the Reserve Bank, and they're all talking about it, mucking around with it or already using generative AI to improve productivity. Then it talks about where are the Australian skill sets coming from, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought that was interesting that according to the financial review, everyone in boardrooms across Australia is already got generative AI as the, you know, the top three priorities for their business moving forwards. Are you seeing that in your consulting slash speaking work? Yeah, and I've had a busy couple of months just in the last couple where I'm getting requests for like a week or next week or whatever. That hasn't happened since pre-COVID where things have like been on such short cycles and AI and, and my content's got a bit more interesting and better over the year as I, as things have evolved. And, and so I'm getting a lot more inquiries about it, but more than I've ever had in, in the last little bit. And everyone just wants to hear about AI. It's interesting. Everyone's an AI expert now because it's like social media. It's very democratized and it's easy to become, you know, prompt hacking expert or, or what have you. Um, my focus has always been the economic side of, of change and how that impacts a company's strategy and operations more than what it can just do. So that's coming thick and fast. It's the number one issue. It's, it's AI in daylight. I saw a funny, uh, Instagram post someone sent to me where a guy walks up on a stage. He's obviously set up or maybe he was at a conference. And he walks onto the stage and he says, AI. And then everyone just claps and he just walks up. And it was bloody hilarious. I just loved it so much. I think you told that story last um, week too. It just, just cracked me up. There you go, doubling down. I really liked <laughs> it if I was told it twice. That's how you know a story's great. Um, I must have told it last week if you've already heard it because I haven't told anyone else. Yeah. Um, but I, that article, I focused on the investment. Um, by the way, Atlassian and Canberra, um, impressive financial vehicles and very, very unimpressive businesses in terms of the product that they sell. But that's a whole other story that we could get into. Well, I think Atlassian creates software that no one really needs. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that Canva isn't exactly, you know, changing the world by giving people access to, you know, push around some pixels and make some pretty pictures. But hey, (laughs) calling it from the cheap seats here. Yeah. Well, I I think of those two, Canva's probably right in the firing line of Dali 3. Yeah, you would think. It just doesn't know it yet. I'll tell you what, they should float yesterday. Mm. Yesterday they should float Mm. because 
their valuation is pie in the sky. There's no way it's worth what they think it's worth. Mm. Um, by the way, Atlassian doesn't even make a profit, so that's a whole other story we could get into, and no doubt you've you've looked at it on the QAV. Uh, yeah, but I, I think that Australia should be ashamed of itself that we've only ever had 20 unicorns and that we're not investing in a big way in AI. I think every country needs to have a position and a strong AI industry in the same way that you need a military or education or any of the other important parts of infrastructure. You sort of need a certain sovereignty around it. And here's the crazy thing. We've had like something like 100 million going to AI startups recently. Now, we do have the disadvantage that we're one-tenth of the size of America, and it's always going to be that way. And businesses that we've done well in have had geographic isolation or we've had commodity advantage. You know, our, our retailers do really well, our banks do really well because they're geographically isolated, and our miners do well because we're lucky that we've got all this stuff in the ground. We've never really done well in anything that uh, could be exportable or global in its nature um, without those advantages, hey, the geographic advantage. Livy Newton-John, man, come on. Yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to give me this. I love that you have a living in John and ACDC yeah. and in excess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, and our 70s movies. Yeah. Melvin, son of Elvin. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, no, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, I remember uh, back when I was at Microsoft uh, 25 years ago talking to ministers, government ministers in Victoria and federally about, in New South Wales, talking about the need to invest in Australia's information economy. We've never seemed to have gone that we're right. We're not serious. You know? we, don't, no. we say it, we don't mean it. When I say we, they, they say it, they don't mean we, it. But all we need rub. for security here's is nuclear rub. subs, Steve. You're missing the point. We just need nuclear submarines. That's that's and it. And we should change. We're going to make them for us constantly yeah. and frequently. Yeah. Um, but, but here's the rub. Here's the skinny. We're one of the few economies around the world, I mean, there's some in Europe, that have an incredible investment vehicle known as superannuation. 10% of every dollar in this country could is investable. So superannuation funds right now, the pool seeking investments is $3.5 trillion. The US invented $1.7 uh, uh, billion in AI startups last year in AI research, the government. But, but seriously, we've got $3.5 trillion at our capacity mm. and the superannuation funds need to do it at scale. They always put one to you know one to three percent of their investment fund in high risk capital. If, if let's say you did something like ten percent in you know directly into AI, we could build a burgeoning industry that serves the world. Like we really could. And the fact that our superannuation goes into the same you know ASX thirty boring investments that aren't moving the needle on anything is a disgrace. It's a national disgrace. We could be using the benefit of our superannuation going into uh, important investments that really change what we can provide the world with. Steve Sammartino for Prime Minister. That's my next campaign. That's right. Yeah. Bill Gates, Steve, says he doesn't expect to see any major innovation come out of ChatGPT 5 compared to ChatGPT 4, according to an interview that he did in German business newspaper Handelsblatt. He says there are plenty of reasons to believe that GPT technology has reached a plateau. There are many good people working at OpenAI who are convinced that GPT-5 will be significantly better than GPT-4, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, Gates says, but he believes that current generative AI has reached a ceiling, though he admits he could be wrong. What do you think about all that? It's hard to know. I, I imagine if anyone should know, it it it, it would be should be him, given the history of what he's looked at and his position. I, I imagine he still has some sort of influence at, at Microsoft, who are deeply ensconced with OpenAI. Uh, I was a bit surprised to hear that uh, because I thought that I, I I know how much better the the most recent iterations have been, just to, from a consumer perspective. I was surprised to hear it. I, it actually really surprised me. I, I, I didn't expect that because usually the narrative is the flip side of that. You think it's good now, wait till time X. And that's always been based on computation capacity and improvements of software code and maybe even database uh, input. So I, I was just surprised and I, and I don't know what to say. 
Well, look, Bill is obviously a very, very smart guy, uh, understands technology very, very well. Uh, you know, and I remember earlier this year when he was talking about open AI, he said that he was flawed at the leap between version three and version four. You know, he said he set them a, a, a challenge that they could pass the SATs or something uh, a year ago, mm. or like a year before GPT-4 came out, I mean. And he thought it would take them five years to do that, and they did it in six months. And he was like, oh, wow, shit, I didn't yeah. see that coming. And, of so course, why Microsoft he, he why has a huge investment in NVIDIA. He has a huge investment – sorry, huge investment in OpenAI. He has a huge investment in Microsoft, and he's you know been keeping track of the OpenAI guys all the way. So that is interesting, but I, I've read a couple of – different sort of spins on this online in Reddit, places like that. One is that, well, he should stay in his own lane. He doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. If Ilya Sutskova and Mira and Sam say that, you know, th there's a plenty of runway left for them to improve on it, then we should trust them rather than him. Secondly, I've read that he, you know, Microsoft has had and continues to have a very large research team that are following their own path on AI, you know, with their own sort of um, model for developing AI that isn't large language model based. But, and you know, maybe he's knows something they don't know. Maybe he sees but that as the path the only thing forward. Like Maybe he's throwing them under the bus a little bit. Not really sure. But his competitors or open AI under the bus? Open AI, or maybe he's throwing that out there just to get everyone off the scent. Yeah, look, don't bother yeah. investing in LLMs. It's uh that's not really well, where the, the big game is at, you know. I, I I thought it had to be the only thing I conclusion I could come to was for some reason, um, he wants to obfuscate what's really going on because it just seems unlikely that it's not going to get better because I don't think I can remember any technology that really got worse. I mean, we might've had economic incentives to make cars worse or consumer goods that have, you know, planned obsolescence or, or, but, but I, I can't remember this ever being the case. Well, you know, I've said before that I think there probably are limitations for how LL, the role that LLMs will play. And, uh, you know, I think that there is this sort of um, expectation that AI bros have that LLMs will continue to improve to infinity uh, that Infinity. that model of artificial intelligence is the be-all and end-all answer for AI. And my gut feeling is that it's not. You know, we have talked about it just being the language user interface th that we use to plug into true expert systems where the true knowledge lies. And this just gives us a way to get data in and out of those far more effectively than we've ever been able to do before. So there may be, you know, that's kind of might be what he's indicating. And maybe we don't need a massive quantum leap in improvement from the LLM models. Maybe there is room for it to be uh, more truthful and more independent, agent-driven, task-driven, those sorts of things. But it doesn't have to be the font of all knowledge. It doesn't need to be the one answer for AI. He goes on to say, he sees great potential in today's AI systems, especially if high development costs and error rates can be reduced and reliability improved. He reckons in the next two to five years, we'll see generative AI viable for medical applications such as drug development or health advice. He talks about how NVIDIA doesn't have an absolute advantage when it comes to chip knowledge. Microsoft, Google, Amazon, five to ten other companies are developing competing offerings, as I said earlier. So he's definitely not saying AI is uh, not going to see massive progress in the next 10 years. He says um, he, he says that in the next 10 years, we'll see it all solved. But interesting, he also says it's weird. We know the algorithm, but we don't really know how it works. As we've said before, I think Kurzweil said the same thing. Stephen Wolfram said the same thing. You know, it's fascinating. It, it does this thing, but we don't understand how it does what it does. It's kind of this yeah. emergent property that we don't understand yet, which is fascinating. So it's interesting to hear that come out of Gates's mouth as well. Yeah, and it's a little bit like our brain. I did think of one thing that didn't get better technologically, and that's the speed of air travel since the late 60s. 
And again, just it was a focus shift on efficiency and comfort and all of that. How much time you got, Steve? I've got another five, six, and, and it's going to be the greatest six minutes, I think, of in podcast life. history. I don't want to over. Pick, yeah. We've got a lot of good stories we could touch on. Pick one. Well, let's go the techno optimist because I, I like that. Did you read and, it? Yeah, I did. I did read it. Mark Andreessen, founder of Netscape back in the day, runs A16Z, venture capitalist, um, published this thing on his Substack, the Techno Optimist Manifesto, where he's basically doing a Martin Luther, stapling his theses to the door of the church. Um, it starts off, lies, we are being lied to. We are told that technology takes our jobs, reduces our wages, increases inequality, threatens our health, ruins the environment, degrades our society, corrupts our children, impairs our humanity, threatens our future, and is ever on the verge of ruining everything. We are told to be angry, bitter, and resentful about technology. We are told to be pessimistic. The myth of Prometheus in various updated forms like Frankenstein, Oppenheimer, and Terminator haunts our nightmares. We are told to denounce our birthright, our intelligence, our control over nature, our ability to build a better world. We are told to be miserable about the future. Truth, our civilization was built on technology. Our civilization is built on technology. Technology is the glory of human ambition and achievement the spearhead of progress and the realization of our potential. And it goes on to be read either wow. as Davros or Hitler. Um, take your pick. That sounded very Hitler-esque to me. Yeah. Sorry. Is that real German? Cause it no. sounded, it sounded no, it's very, very plausible. fake German. Um, yeah, so what did you what did you think of uh, Mark's little rant there? His screed. I felt like it had a whole lot of truth in it and a whole lot of self serving maybe lies in it as well. <laughs> so it had some bits in there that were absolutely true. There's no doubt that the plot of technology, which is uh, using tools to solve our problems, you know, all the way back to the spear to the whatever, right? Of course. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that thinks that technology doesn't make life better in many ways, but I think it was very thin. And I think that the optimism and the techno-utopianism was just a little bit ridiculous in some ways, and he managed to just absolutely ignore some of the downsides of technology. I I always like Kevin Kelly's view of it. He always says that technology is 51 good, 49 bad. It's good enough to keep forging ahead with it, but there's always externalities. And, And I think if you could just remove the word technology and just talk about it as a almost like an economic manifesto, it was very, very thin and it forgot about every externality and that in many ways it's created the world that is far more unequal, that there is more fakery, that there, you know, there is, you know, economic inconsistency. And he's been a major beneficiary. They said found it, it sounded like a marketing manifesto from a business and a reason why you should give me more money because you know, I know best, so you better send it to me. So I, I, I thought there was a lot of truth in there, but it was wrapped in a whole lot of frog shit. Well, it reminded me of Ayn Rand, and I'm a big fan yeah. of Ayn Rand. I'm 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 one of those very few communists. I never read any of her books. I've read them all multiple times, and her letters, and everything. I'm one of those very few communists that actually loves Ayn Rand, but. Like everything, I don't agree with everything that she says. I don't agree with her worldview in every way, but I think she makes some good points about innovation and innovators needing to be allowed to innovate because that's what drives humanity forwards. I don't think it's unequally, uh, it's unparalleled goodness that always comes from innovation. You know, my psychopath book was partially about, yeah, psychopaths can do great things. They can also do a lot of damage and we need to keep the good, ring fence the bad, right? I think it's the same with this. But the, the thing that I always get out of Mark that amuses me with this, and this was the same, is he goes to, goes to some lengths to uh, piss on communism and, uh, you know, centralized control of an economy, whereas I think AI is going to give us the ability to bring about Star Trek communism. It's going to give us, you know, the, the attempts to centralize command and control over the economy that the socialists tried 
in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s failed miserably because they didn't have computing. They didn't have the power to understand and uh, manipulate huge amount of data and complexity. It was it was an impossible uh, task. Well, that, that was why that was why the, the the capitalist markets won because the data and the complexity was synthesized by human behavior and you know voting with consumer you know consumer voting with dollars and that that kind of moves some of that complexity around. It distributes that. Yeah, partially. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Mostly one because they they scaled up their military way faster than the communists were able to do, and therefore they were able to use that to destroy their ability to stabilize their economies. It's a whole other story. But um, I think that the the irony in Marx's thing is I do think AI is going to give us the ability to take way more control over the economy than capitalism capitalism market forces have been able to give us. And with the capitalism comes, you know, crashes every 10 years and huge amounts of inequality and climate change being driven by industrialization and all these sorts of things. Uh, so that was my main takeaway is he's kind of missing the big point here. I agree that technology is going to drive us forwards and we need it to drive us forwards because, as I said before, very pessimistic about our chances of surviving this century without it. But I think it's also going to give us the ability to realize the dreams of the of Marx and Lenin and uh, Engels from 150 years ago. It felt like to me that he was accusing people of being Luddites who raise valid concerns around some of the externalities of technology. And it reminded me of, again, I'm, I'm a non-believer in pure capitalism or a non-believer in communism. Again, granted, we've never really had purity of, of either of them, but it does seem like some mixed model has always given better results so far, you know, since we've had organized economies uh, where there's some regulation and there's some rules and, and then there's some free market capitalism. And I think it's the same with technology. You know, the technology on average, you know, pushes us forward, but you need regulation and rules around it, especially in a, a, you know, a capitalist economy. And I think it's the same one with technology. It's almost like, you know, technology and economics sort of have this quasi mirror image of each other in that there's going to be externalities and they need to be discussed and attended to. And just to have this optimistic, it's all good forge ahead thing just seems super self-serving. Well, is that a wrap up for today? You got to go. I think I think it is. There was some other good stuff, but you know what? I feel like we can come back next week and just double down on the goodness. <laughs> Except you'll have another hard out, so we'll have to we'll have to cut it short again. Next week I won't. All right, we'll see. I can do it earlier next week moment. too because I'm not doing a show in the morning. Uh, Let's go longer. Well, that's a wrap from Futuristic this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Maverick, for joining in uh, a little bit. And uh, Futuristic Consulting, if you want us to come in and do a deep dive workshop for your business on how you can be getting the most out of AI today and where it's going to take your business a year from now, get in touch. Track us down. We're on Twitter. We're on email. We're on the web. You can find us. Awesome. See you, buddy. Talk to you next week. Glad to champ.